0: Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Edis jb 3 And I realize I gave you all a lot of life updates at the end of the last episode, particularly around me stepping away from podcasting in this current form, also around a new collaborative opportunity that we have with the Cummings Graduate Institute, and also the new teaching endeavor that I'm taking on with Loyola University Chicago all really exciting things. The one thing that I forgot to mention because there's just so many things going on, but an effort to start publicly celebrating my wins. I have accepted a fellowship opportunity with this group known as ASTO, which is the American Association for State and Tribal Health Organizations in collaboration with the Morehouse School of Medicine and the CDC. And so why is this important? It is centered around leadership development, especially for those that come from marginalized backgrounds. And typically I shy away from endeavors like this, but this one really called and spoke to me. And I had my first session this this week. And one of the things that we talked about in our own leadership development was really you know, why do you do this work? Why are we here? Why do we continue to challenge these systems of inequity and of oppression? What drives you? And I I really took this to heart because, you know, rarely do people ask you, why do you do the things that you do in a sincere way anyway? And I really thought about it and I, I feel in part, I have a responsibility because there are people who sacrifice their lives and so much more for me to get into the spaces that I'm in now, to be able to say that I'm a a doctorally prepared candidate for positions, to say that I have been able to navigate the various spaces that I have is because other folks have moved obstacles and barriers out my way that I will never even know about. And I, I don't take that responsibility lightly. So in looking back, I also see my role now is to do the same. And so when Kim Young talks about social work retirement and getting out of the way, that's something that I consider, right? But also I gotta make sure that the people who are following behind me don't run into the same obstacles that I did. Sure, they're, they can run into some things, but I don't want them to have the same level of burden that I did. I want it to get easier and easier as generations go on. And so why do I lead the episode with this? Well, I I lead it this way because I'm really inspired by today's guest. In many ways, I I admire this brother because there's no doubt about how he feels about anything. He makes things very clear. And just his grasp and command of knowledge and history just makes every conversation so much better. And so when I think about people who have paved the way for me, I think about people like Josh McNeil, who as a social worker, as a podcast host, as just a brother in the work, those are the type of people that you want to surround yourself with. And I'm just grateful to be in fellowship with the soon to be Dr. McNeil, but it, it's his leadership that I, I grasp so much from. And usually I, I wait until the end to you know, give flowers. But in in today's episode, I really want to do it up front because as I think about the ways that we've been prepared as practitioners to go out into the field and to do this work, just as soon as we get in, we have to start unlearning because we realize that many of the frameworks and the theories and the practices that have become common are rooted in racist ideals or they're centered in a dominant majority view and now as black and brown practitioners we start to enter these spaces and we say to ourselves this isn't working for our community how do we change it or we have to do something completely different and the work that josh is doing that he's trying to uplift with black men and mindfulness and meditation and yoga to bring about healing is is the kind of work that i I like to just be around and so as I prepare to, to formally introduce you all to Josh, I just want you to keep in mind the things that you've learned through your career, through your education. What are some of the things that you need to unlearn? Because you now realize that things weren't exactly taught to you the way that they should have been. And so with that grand intro, excited to introduce you all to
1: Josh McNeil. Josh. Um, uh, I'm a social worker. I do social work things um i part of a podcast called the melanated social work podcast um we've had i think we had like 40 episodes we got some more unfolding and we you know we're just a brotherhood that does dope stuff and I'm, I'm very happy to to be here today
0: you say it like melanated social work podcast is not like the podcast like all of us who have come after you like you are the Pod Father, and we're just glad to be in the space. But that's that's fine. <laughs>
1: nah, actually, to be honest, the pod father is our brother, Chris, out in, in Portland. He had actually have one of his stickers right here. Shout so out to to Chris. He has like uh you know, mindful mixtapes and he has podcasts and he does all types of like mindful eating. Um, he's like the black David Chang mixed with like He's like a black Anthony Bourdain, but like <laughs> since he's in the Pacific Northwest, he's uh, he's he's Frazier, and I know he's not gonna like that uh that reference because Frazier is in Seattle, and I know he just loves Seattle but so much. He he had me on his podcast about over two years ago before Melanated Social Work kind of had their thing going, and you know to be honest, I kind of listened to him since. November, 2018. Yeah. Like the first week or so uh, of November. Uh, I remember just, wait, I had like two jobs at that time and I would wait between jobs and listen to him and hear him interview. So uh, I think he's, he's the proper, he's the proper, he's the LeBron James of the game. And I know he loves oh, he's LeBron gonna, James too.
0: He's going to hate that reference more than the Frazier one. <laughs> oh. Much no,
1: love but shout out him. to the
0: hip hop social worker, you know, get your merch up. We, we got plenty of stickers going around. Mm-hmm. So Josh, one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on the episode is because, you know, we've had conversations and we often talk about the unwritten or untold history of social work. And mm-hmm. there's oftentimes I, I know even from being in MSW program that we only highlighted certain voices, certain stories, and certain people. And what I want to do is at least start the conversation with describing the relationship between Social work is some of the major forms of oppression, like racism, classism, and
1: sexism. So, you want to start the conversation there? Uh sure. Um, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned this because I'm not going to say where, but you know, Melanated Social Work. Um, we did a we did a training for this wonderful or- organization, um, and you know, my section of it was called the Caucasity of 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 social work, or mental health. And I define caucasity as caucasity can be defined as the audacious, anti-Black, racist, misogynistic, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, and other oppressive behaviors under the guise of white supremacy. The caucasity of white supremacy uh, demonizes many communities of color. And you know you just look back at the history of things, psychotherapy, was a formal term of the practice that was coined in the late 1800s, which was generalized to support mental health challenges with a psychiatrist, quote, psychologist, quote, or alternative mental health provider. And this is from Talkspace, right? They didn't have social work in the, the, the realm of mental health at the time. And if I do my, if my, if my research is right, I think in the 80s, just by the 80s, they started doing social work licenses. Um, And, you know, I I know maybe, I don't know how people, what their knowledge of social work is, but I mean, you don't have to be licensed in social work to be a social worker, but to be a licensed clinical social worker, that started like before I was born a little bit. So uh, just under 40 years ago, if I recollect right, a lot of the marginalization and such can be, you know, looked at, under Sigmund Freud. We know at these places and these spaces, a lot of times, first of all, Blacks and, and brown folks, indigenous folks, a lot of non-white groups, we were not thought of a, in regards to mental health and social work and all those things. So just even to the to this day, um, even when you have to study for your licensure test, or you go for your, your master of social work, BSW or what have you, you learn about Pavlov, you learn about Sigmund Freud, you learn about uh, Erickson and PIJ, but I'm gonna talk today about Sigmund Freud, right? Um, You know, there's a lot of patriarchy in mental health. Um, And to be more specific, the hysteria hysteria diagnosis, the hysteria diagnosis is known as a psychoneurosis marked by emotional excitability and disturbances of the psychogenic sensory, vasomotor and visceral uh, functions. Uh, Freud is responsible for bringing bringing this diagnosis into the mental health world. It was not removed from the DSM until 1980 a significant amount of women in that, you know, in the time were prescribed tranquilizers to help them combat things like uh, <laughs> Boredom of all things, but more disturbingly trauma due to marital and sexual abuse. This resulted in, you know, different addictions and psychological side effects. Uh, following the removal of hysteria from the DSM, um, many women have since been diagnosed with what we now know as borderline personality disorder, which is marked by emotional volatility and instability. And also, to even to this day, uh, women are 75% more likely to be diagnosed with this uh, than any, other, any, other, any others that identify as femme, or W-O-M-X-N, women. So I'm trying to encompass it all. So that's, it's deep, right? And even with that being said, like people credit this person. um, I'm not trying to be petty. This person named Jane Adams, she's credited as the founder of social work. She was part of finding these settlement houses to help the impoverished in Chicago, Illinois. And she was also awarded a Nobel Peace Prize what at the same time that she was doing all this you know how many like black people african-american specifically were moving up from mississippi of all places to, to chicago the south side i've been to chicago and they call it the black ellis island it's like this train station off like lake michigan or michigan avenue over there in like the, the call of the loop and we a lot of our people i'm not from chicago but a lot of our people came up through there and there was a Churches in the South Side of Chicago that were doing a lot of quote unquote social work things, right? Also, a black woman who spoke out against lynching and treatment of black women, who was also in Chicago, Ida B. Wells. Let me say it again: Ida B. Wells has not gotten has has not gotten her 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 just due in what we call the foundation of social work. And there's plenty of other black and brown folks that just don't get the recognition of being, you know, trailblazers in social work. So it, it, it's, it's so deeply embedded uh, into social work, it's really bad. Even from, you know, where you are in Michigan. Um, Malcolm X lived there in uh, what they call uh, foster care or uh, they called him the system, say social workers or whatever, social services in Michigan called him a juvenile delinquent. You know, social work broke up his family, right? Um, His mom, you know, had a lot of trauma and she was put in a a mental health hospital in Kalamazoo for like almost 30 years, right? And, you know, Malcolm X, his family had to deal with that. His family was broken up by, you know, do gooding white people thinking like, oh, these, these Negroes can't help themselves. So let's break up their families and... Cost trauma And I've even learned that with even a lot of Japanese internment camps and such, social workers had a role in colonizing and harming Asian communities. And let's not even talk about, um, no, no, let, let's, let's talk about it. A lot of social work has had a lot of role in unsettling and displacing and taking children away from indigenous women to what we know now as the United States. Without the consent of women, so the the marginalization of, of of in mental health and social work is very deeply embedded into the bedrock that we are still fighting to this day and will probably be here before I die, but but probably be here well after I die. So yeah.
0: So you've listed countless examples, right, of figures of um, experiences of violations of, of rights even. But why or how was this glossed over in the education of the history of social work?
1: I mean, I went to Boston College and um, shots off to Boston College uh, somewhat uh, and all the other systems of in social work. But if you just look at social work from the inception of social work, quote unquote with the only person, the, 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 the ancestor of social worker Jane Addams has been explicitly white. Like you look at a lot of these these, these systems, they're finding about white people. A lot of these systems give white people who already have power and privilege to bring them into these systems to be professors. And also white people, is just the narcissistic nature of them, right? Um, AKA, it's in their DNA, them no good ancestors, right? that they think it starts with them when it really doesn't. Um, and it takes black and brown people, or at least my mother and how my, I was taught, take everything with a grain of salt. Education is more than what you learn, right? Uh, you can learn some things in school, but it's also what you learn in your community with your family and, and such. And that's how I was taught. But I think that with white people, they see themselves reflected in it so much and they don't acknowledge the marginalization that social work has done because they just think it stops right there. But as both African-American men, we know that, you know, African-Americans, you know, our indigenous brothers and sisters, we've been the bedrock to a lot of things and we don't get credit. And they don't have, white people just generally don't have that foundation. They start on and on that they're white and they have privilege when they're 27 and in grad school when you, right, I knew at four years old, I was black. So imagine if you knew at three, four years old, you being black compared to somebody who's 24, 25, 26. I was 20 years ahead of the game with knowing stuff and just that intuition of things. They just don't have it. And they enable these systems of oppression. There's a social worker by the name of, I don't want to say her full name, but Dana. Shouts off to Dana LMSW in New York. Um, a Latinx sister, she posted something a couple of months back and she said that a lot of these, I'm paraphrasing, a lot of these, uh, these, these social work schools or the admissions office, they just let people in, they just let people in. And it's really <clears throat> a business, right? They want to get your money. You think the student debt crisis is because people just don't want to pay the loans? They can't. So it's all a business. Um, But nonetheless, Dana was saying that admissions don't look at people who want to change systems. They just want, it's basically the business. And then also people have an ulterior motive to get into these schools, to get the DSW, to get the the fancy letters, to get the PhD in social work, to get the MSW in social work, to get the LICSW, you know, to get those full licensures. They're in it for the benefits, but they're not in it to change. And as we know, you know, white people have never really done their just do, and they never will in social work to make the change because it's they get the power and the privilege uh, to be in these places and spaces, and they don't change the systems. And in fact, the social work ethics tells us to change these systems. But we all know it's just it's just word salad. You know, the black and brown folks that are in social work, we are in, especially millennials. We're in these places and spaces now to get our own LLCs and private practices and platforms because you know, we're the cornerstone, right? And initially we were the stone that was refused. Now we are the cornerstone, right? A lot of, I was helping a young lady today. Uh, so I was supporting her with finding, so I'm about to refer her out because her, her session limit is done, but she's looking through a lot of these providers and it's all white women and it's already a turnoff. So it's funny how the last shall be first and the first shall be last or whatever, the, you know, the quote is, because right now, like I said, black and brown folks are the we're the cornerstone because we were the stones that were refused. And, you know, <laughs> Malcolm X said the chickens come home to roost. So we're, we're, we're doing our thing right now. And shout out to Malcolm X too. You know, when you mentioned the, the mediocrity of folks,
0: People know that I, I just finished a doctoral program. Woo, woo. And yeah, yeah. Fight on. Mm-hmm. What about that? Um, we should fight on, right? Like we, we actually should be fighting on. I think to your point, people do get very comfortable with the degrees, with the credentials, the privilege, the access to come with it. And they're not necessarily designed to uproot, to dismantle, mm-hmm. to abolish. And in many cases, I think the degrees really just allow them to perpetuate oppression, right? Like you get to jump ahead now to leadership roles where you get to make active decisions that uphold inequity. Like you don't, you're not often, or at least some of the folks that I've met over the past two years are not built to say no, or not mm-hmm. built to call out what's obvious to, to you and I. It's like, and I'll save my whole thoughts on allyship for another day, but <laughs> it it just becomes really clear that even though we we share like those letters behind our names, we might not be seeing issues the same way.
1: I agree. And speaking of, I probably mentioned this already in other podcasts and with you and what have you. Um, out to Feminista Jones, who's a social worker. She says, as far as allyship, on page forty three of Reclaiming Our Space how black feminists are changing the world from the tweets to the streets. She's actually a social worker too. She says, quote, since there is no mutual benefit for oppressors and privileged people when the oppressed are liberated, there can be no such alliance, thus no allies in my longest Twitter thread ever. I offered that people use the term air quotes ally as a catch all term and performative act to assure others that they aren't bad people um and i feel as though end quote i feel as though like to your point kind of that to be honest i would have been trying to change systems without these degrees mm-hmm. right um i've always tried to speak truth to power just knowing like my family history my lineage uh, i'm related to folks that liberated themselves against whites matter of fact it's a, it's like legit in my dna my my, uh, I think my great great grandfather, a white man, spit on him in North Carolina. Uh, I don't know when, but he spit on him. This white man, my great great grandfather, he liberated himself and he he slapped the white man in the face. And he had to leave New York. Um, he had to leave North Carolina within 24 hours, and he wound up in Brooklyn, New York. And you you see, like it just comes to a point, my uh. Tupac was saying that to paraphrase there's only so much there's only so many ways you can be nice when your back is against the wall sooner or later when your back is against the wall it's fight uh fight flight or freeze and you know sometimes you got to put those i'm not in i'm not endorsing violence i'm not telling people to do this but like you have to defend yourself right Sometimes, you know, a lot, I see a lot of videos of people who just have their phones out and they're videotaping some things. And shout out to these, uh, these Black queer brothers I saw a while ago. It was a white man saying some disparaging thing to them. And they had it so they, the, 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 the story wouldn't get misconstrued. They had somebody videotaping it and they liberated themselves to throw hands at this white man. And sometimes, hey, man, it's only so much we can take. And hands might get thrown. In the name of Jesus. Try Jesus. Don't try me, because some of us have hands. You dig?
0: So even in that same vein, and speaking of of defending oneself, of liberating oneself, what have you observed, maybe in in classrooms or other training settings, when students challenge their professors or the institutions that ignore this history?
1: I think... I think that if there's somebody like me and you, they're gonna get gaslit. Right. I know when I was at Boston College, it was then known as the Boston College Graduate School of Social Work, right? A professor told me this is like late, I wanna say this is like Hollow around Halloween 2014. You know, I had on my I I used to like have half of my, my work uniform you know, under a hoodie. So I was like, wear a hoodie. And I remember this professor was saying, sometimes with those that we, see, that we support, I don't want to say clients or patients anymore, but those that we are in service to, I'll say that, we have to be real and be very explicit. And she was saying that um, you just got to come out and say certain things, no matter how people may feel. She told the class that he told somebody that she was supposedly serving, oh, you're dressed like an adolescent black male. You're dressed for a B&E with that hoodie on. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, I have you talk about black men in hoodies and breaking and entering, and that's how that's what you think of black men with those hoodies. And I have a hoodie on in your class that so I, you know, my mother, she's like, Man, excuse my excuse, my French, can I curse? Yeah, this, this isn't Disney. Okay. My mother is 10 toes down, uh, born and raised in Brooklyn. You know, she's a Brownsville girl. If you don't know Brownsville, uh, okay, <laughs> look no. up Brownsville, right? Uh, I'm here. <laughs> and she's like, nah, fuck all that. 10 toes down. Fuck that education. I got your back. We'll figure this out. You need to go talk to her about that. Your ancestors died for you to be in that place and she's going to disrespect you. Don't worry, boo. I got your back. So the next day, the next, fr- the next class, which is like, I think the first Friday in November, kind of talked to, talk to about it. I'm like, I just kind of felt some type of way that you said that. She's like, oh, I'm sorry you felt that way. She didn't apologize. Nah. And, you know, she, when I would have papers and I would talk about microaggressions that I dealt with, she would tell me, maybe it's not all white people. Maybe it's in your mind. And I'm thinking to myself, Even in a grad school program, I didn't have all the knowledge and experience that I have now to to kind of verbalize and articulate myself in that situation. Um, And looking back, I don't regret it at all. And I know at Boston College, we received awards for the recently distinguished alumni in January 2020, and we all wore hoodies. And I made a speech, and I'm like, in this very school, y'all said that adolescent African American Black males are suspicious, this and that. And I'm receiving this award at the same school with a hoodie on because of that professor. So props to you, with to that professor. May Allah bless your social work career um, in the name of Allah. And I feel just not even just with that with that standpoint, in that situation, I should say, a lot of people are just gassing it, right? They, they're told that, uh, oh, well, it's not the school, it's you. So they get gassed to tell them that they're the issue when they're preaching all this social justice, yada, yada, yada. And I know no place is perfect and everything, but not more often than not, you can listen to the Melanated Social podcast when we had uh, Erica Hart and how she was treated at Columbia, right? As a professor, you know, Um, so go listen to the episode, but also just from a student standpoint, I think it can also depend on where you are. Because I feel as though more, I think you're more likely gonna get that at a liberal arts school or HBCU to speak up and out against things. I think that in other places too, some young people are just, they're used to being marginalized. So they just take it, right? You have a lot of people that are, have have, have family that are coming from other places, uh, other countries, and they may, as their first generation in, in college or grad school, they may not have the the understanding and the tools because maybe that they were taught many times i feel with immigrant communities to just be humble like right? you know the parents right and they come to america to give their children a better education they don't want to sometimes and i can't blame them they don't want to push the narrative to ruffle feathers uh because they just want to get the education right so they're afraid to so they just kind of you know it's that Kind of like that, cut you kind of get that you can't see, and it keeps happening over and over, and it's just like lime juice will get in it. That's how some people deal with it and they want to speak up, but you know, they're not gonna be listened to. People don't speak up because they have tenure. Oh well, people let me say this, students may not speak up because they're professors that have tenure. So you can't really you gotta really do something like there's been professors that have lost tenure. Yes, but generally speaking, nine times out of 10, those professors don't lose tenure, you know? And it's a lot of bureaucracy and power that is held against these students because these institutions are looking like th- these kids, like, look will get somebody else. And I know when I graduated from BC, there's a sister that I graduated with who spoke proof to power many times, when she got her, her, her MSW degree she walked on the stage, got a degree, and then came back down, and there was an administrator and was like, I'm so glad paraphrasing, I'm so glad you're not here anymore to cause ruckus. So, and a lot of these places again are enabled by white people. You think they you think in 402 years of people like me and you, our ancestors being here, and our indigenous brothers being here? When have they ever? made any tangible changes to like put themselves on the line like that not many the only one that comes to mind for me is john brown and they can't even spell john brown they don't know who john brown is i know who john brown is but they don't do it (laughs) it's not in them let's make the connection between
0: higher education or of social work education and current practice and so okay what are some of the consequences that you see of this ignored history, of not being challenged, or being challenged and gaslighted, in current practice? So I know we we come from from different walks of life on this because I'm more in the macro space. I'm you know policy, um, organizational culture. You're you're more micro, but I think you secretly want to be macro. But it's cool though. Come on over when you're ready.
1: Um, I'm. It's, it's, it's Hey, this this degree and the license and all that is. It's a lot you can do, so hopefully like our brother Trey. I'm going I'm to be like uh, Malcolm X with him standing on the front lines, <laughs> getting our Nipsey hustle on 10 toes down. 10 toes down. Top mm-hmm. of the top. Yes, sir. Um, I feel like one of the challenges, again, I just think it's fear. The big thing, so speaking of like the, the, the clinical route, and you want to go licensed, A lot of people are afraid to go against the supervisors because they know the supervisors have to write off on their hours. I've heard so many stories of social workers trying to get their licenses and supervisors ghosting them, not getting back to them. Um, And they're just afraid to put it on the line, right? Because maybe that's the only job. They teach us that in social work, uh, we don't get paid a lot. So it's like, if you're gonna lose the one job that's good enough, that doesn't pay a lot, then what do you, like, you gotta be a certain type of person to put it on the line. But also, you know, I think that, I mean, I don't know if I'm answering the question. Like, I think a lot of social workers have more than one job. So maybe the ones that do wanna talk up and say some stuff, they, they will get fired. They'll find a way. But I, I just think the a, a big challenge more so in the clinical route is they're afraid of ruffling the feathers of the person, the superior social worker who's signing off on their hours because they don't, they don't wanna have their livelihood on the line. And just in general, it's a lot of things that make people um, afraid to put it on the line. But also the thing is like, I think we kinda, I'm kinda going on a, on a tangent right now. Um, I remember I was talking to you recently about how I've seen in the last year and change since the pandemic started, how I've seen the trajectory of white clinical social workers and black and brown clinical social workers. A lot of white clinical social workers, they'll maybe have their first license and they can they they go into private practice of like 28, 29, right? Um, and it's that that could be one part of it. And then other white social workers, they may go to the urban communities and We'll help Dante and Jaquan and Jose and Maria, you know, on some like, what's one of those white savior movies? Uh, blindside. Right. they be on some blindside shit, right? For us as black and brown folks on the other side, trying to do a clinical, ind- the independent route, I'm more so speaking of with private practice, right? We do that because we're trying to escape the foundation of social work, right? Social work is a burning house. And white people, here's the thing. The challenge is white people, really, because they can post a black square. I think somebody said on your podcast recently, like the ally cookies, they want the validation, but they don't do the work. Shout out to Dr. Jessica Isom. You feel me? They don't want to do the work. They want to have my black ass or somebody's brown to... to talk to him about stuff that they should do when they really need to go in front of a damn uh, therapist. And be humble. Talk all those things to the white people that go have some affinity space with your people. Sometimes you don't know it all. Sometimes you should just take a step back and not say anything, because sometimes they center themselves a little bit too much. But when it's a black or brown person being in danger or harm, they don't say anything that that. <laughs> that book they read an African-American and Lat- Latinx history of the United States, that goes out the door. The, 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 the medical apartheid they read, that goes out the door. The any even Kendi book, that goes out the door. So I think it's a challenge for us as black and brown people to deal with white people who have not done their work and who, you know, I've seen white people in these nonprofits and jobs and stuff like that, social work or, or what have you, they can take a low-paying job, right? But they, they have an inheritance. They're more of a trust fund kid. So they can, they can, they can, they can be, they can lose a job and be all right. And the biggest thing is they don't want to divest from these jobs and these positions. They go with the status quo and they think what they do is right, but what they do is white.
0: Let's talk about two paths, right? Because one of it, one of them is about unlearning right and it's actually no it's unlearning for all so could you describe kind of your experience in processing unlearning because one it sounds like you were hip to begin with and I would say even for like my own social maturity I, I learned later right like I had to go out and seek my own facts how did you go about unlearning some of the
1: things or better yet learning the things that you didn't capture in grad school I think it's really just for one, if you're a social worker or anybody that's trying to do some type of social justice work, like no knock to you, but you should have been doing the work for one. Um, It shouldn't take a degree in the privileges that you get to realize these things. I think it's really at the end of the day, fuck all the degrees and licenses It's about just evolution. Right. Um, And I think like, for me, I'll say for me, my, my process of learning is just like being able to just let it let it process for you, right? Just to think about it, um, you know, going to therapy, right? I go to therapy on a the regular, right? Being able to be challenged about toxic masculinity that I had, you know, being able to be in um, in space with other, you know, black men for them to Tell me, like, yo, Josh, that was transphobic. That was homophobic. That was sexist. Like, that was misogynoiristic. If you don't know what misogynoir is, go look it up, right? Being misogynoiristic, being a colorist, like all those things. I had to just really. It took a. It took a while just to sit back and it's that gut feeling for one. Be like, man, I did fuck up, right? To to be able to be have the humility to be called in, to do the therapy, to read the book to know that even though you are evolving, that you're going to continue to fuck up because humans just fuck up. And also just looking at, again, Malcolm X, like he went from Malcolm Little to Detroit Red to Malcolm X to el Hajj Malik El-Jabaz. He went through different phases. And in only 39 years, he made a lot of different changes. So I just think it's all about, you know, human evolution and wanting to get better. And just acknowledging that, like, as humans, we're all going to do some messed up things. And karma sucks. Um, but I, I don't know. That's just my personal, it's my personal compass. I don't really know what others kind of do. But I would just, my advice to people is just to go with your gut, to know that you don't know everything, um, to read, to, to be open to being called in. I've been called in and yeah, it doesn't feel fun, but it makes you better. And you gotta, you gotta put yourself out there a little bit. And I think the, the thing with white supremacy is like, there's this perfectionism mentality. Like you have to know everything. Just nobody knows everything with all the degrees and licenses and this and that. My, like Malcolm X didn't finish school. He's one of the most brilliant men ever. He evolved. My grandmother, God rest her soul, she came up in the great migration from South Carolina to New York. He didn't, she didn't finish high school. She's one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. So sometimes also with us degree folks, that debt sucks. And also just because we have degrees don't mean we know everything. Love that. So it, it's good to, it's good to be around a mix of different people from different walks of life, to be able to learn from them. Because at the end of the day, You got two ears and one mouth. You know, I think about that often as far as like the different
0: phases of one's life because Mm -hmm. James Bell of 20 years ago, or even, you know, 10 years ago, wouldn't Mm -hmm. be on a podcast. Wouldn't be talking about equity would be spewing some of the worst things that you could even imagine. And I think Mm -hmm. part of it is growth, right. And being exposed to other folks and, when people talk about the importance of diversity, like that, that's what it really is. Like mm-hmm. actually being exposed and engaging with, with other folks and mm-hmm. learning what's important to them and why it matters and why the words that you use matter and how it impacts them. Because, you know, I'm a facilitator sometimes and mm-hmm. I always mm-hmm. talk about intent and impact.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because just because you meant well,
1: okay, like mm-hmm. that, that takes away nothing from the damage that was done. hmm and I think a, I had a, I was in this program called on that, on the, from what you kind of said, it it takes a vulnerability. I had a, somebody who was a so superior to me when I was in city my team leader. Um, she was a black woman, she was an African woman, and she kind of pulled me to the side. And she's just like, Josh, you know, a lot of, a lot of black men, they don't wanna show their vulnerability. You know, sometimes it takes real strength to show your vulnerability. And I think that a lot of people just in general, and I still, I still, I'm still challenged by it. I still have a lot of growing to do even after uh-huh. this podcast. And it's just the biggest thing is just to know that Nipsey is hustle said it best. It's a, it's a, it's a marathon. It ain't a race, you know? So I have to just give myself passion um, I mean, compassion and grace to know that it takes time. And also just to be vulnerable. Like I, last week I didn't pass my, 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 my independent licensure, but I'm gonna get back on that thing. You guys believe, like right when I came home and days after, I was back studying, I was back on that thing. And that type of stuff will keep you humble and it'll keep you vulnerable, but also to embrace, embrace that. And I think that if you're able just to be in that space, to embrace those feelings of sadness and frustration and anger and all those things, and just to, to speak about it, right? A lot of us on social media, we're going on there just showing all the wins. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, we come from a generation now where <clears throat> we're probably the last generation overall that had to remember their parents' numbers off the top of their head. Still got to remember and grab our numbers, Right? I had to remember numbers. You had to go to the white pages. You had to go to the yellow pages, all that. And then we're like Generation X, Z, whatever. They're in the whole TikTok and all that stuff. We had MySpace, right? I so had Black Planet or that, right? We're part of the very first generation of social media where it wasn't just showing all the wins and showing all the successes and degrees and I'm here and Nah, man, like the kids now, they're seeing they're seeing that. Like the 20 year olds, you're born like 99 to 2002, you're seeing all that, but really. You just starting off in life. You just your brain isn't even fully developed. And I think it takes sometimes, you know, not to do it for likes or this and that, but real life is not social media. It's a lot of non fun, painful moments that are not highlighted on social media. And social media is not a thing. It can be used as a tool. This is how we met and how we've networked. Um but it's, it's not real life and it's, it's, it's this power in being vulnerable. And I think a lot of times too, um, with whites, they're not used to being vulnerable and they're just so accustomed to the entitlement that they're, the, they're in their own insular world. So, yeah.
0: I do wanna go back really quickly because it, it's, it's not funny, it's not ironic, but it, it just happened today. I was talking to my mom and I was following up from my stress test that I took a few, few weeks back. And it's, you no, know, everything looks good. And she's like, but James, you, you got to talk to somebody. Like, because I, I don't actively have a therapist. It's been a while since I've had one. And she she asked me a question, which really surprised me. It's like, why is it that you don't talk to someone? Mm. And like, I I thought about it. I was going to like paraphrase, but I, I decided to be like 100% real. it's like? it was never modeled for me. Like I never saw what it looked like, you know, to cry meant you were weak. I mean, all the the classic tenets of toxic masculinity, I'm still battling, right? Like I I have Mm -hmm. not reached a place where I'm like, you know what, this thing hurt me, I'm gonna cry about it. Because there's this constant challenge of, oh, you know, if I do that, how is it gonna be perceived? And I've got the added bonus of, you know, I got two boys. And so mm-hmm. I'm constantly thinking about what am I modeling, right? Because wow. I don't want them to think that you're emo- you don't express your emotions. Because mm-hmm. I, got, I got one of the boys, they're just like, they're loud. You know, They he wants to be heard by any means. If he doesn't like something, he's, he's screaming about it. I want him to tone it down, you know, a couple notches. But I do want him to know that, you know, you have emotions. You should show them. But I also have to be like, don't be a hypocrite because... Dad, you're walking around upset, pissed, mad all day, but you're mm-hmm. trying to play it
1: off by playing a video game. You know, it's, it's interesting that you mention that because um, it's actually Men's Health Month right now. It is. Um, and, you know, I just got into this little – I'm trying to be like you. I just got into this DSW program at University of Alabama. Hey, I'm shout to have out. that, you know, trying to have that DSW at the end of my name. Dr. Um, McDale. You already. And a lot of what I want to do is be able to be there to heal. Um, not say I'm not the sole, I'm not the sole one. It's, a, it's not, it's not a lot of us. It needs to be more. But there's just so much, like I say, men, but also black men, because uh, like in general with masculinity, and those that are probably more masculine presenting, or those that identify as men, I want to include all spectrums of it. Um, there's a little bit of toxic masculinity in us all. And I think, you know, I heard somewhere in the podcast, like for black men, how do we show our emotions? Like it's never been modeled to us. Like we've, of course, and there's nothing to to dissuade or to belittle or to talk about because black women have dealt with it more than anybody in the world, bar none. Black woman is the most mistreated human being in the world, right? Where there's black women in, in, in Pakistan. Yep. We're there. Go Google it. There's black people in Palestine, Yep, we're there, uh, you know. So, but I think also black women support each other, in a sense of when there's for health and going to like doctors' exams and stuff like that. Whereas with men, it's like, oh, suck it up, be a man, you'll be all right. Patch it up, put some put some on it. You know what I'm saying? Um, I think that I've been able to look at myself more through therapy. Uh, and like, I got some fucked up shit going on with me <laughs> it, it's, it's hard it's humbling to be like when, you're, when your therapist just sits there and it's quiet and she just like drop the flex bomb on you some stuff you need to do and you're sitting there like and I couldn't imagine being,
0: being someone who understands the therapeutic process and knowing exactly what they're doing like I couldn't imagine that like oh you just did that thing to me like Jedi like some, mind tricks,
1: you know? <laughs> right. There's like I've had different therapists do different jobs because I've had different insurances, but like my guard is up when I initially meet with them. Um, So I'm like, wonder what modality they're gonna come with. But not even just the mental health. Like we don't talk ab- enough about the prostate exams, right? We don't talk about more about um, our sexual health. Yeah. Like right? there's so much that just doesn't get talked about, and I think it's really. And I, gotta, I have anxiety, I'll be honest with you. Um, Same, bro. I have really bad anxiety. And, I, you know, to be honest, I ain't going to say what exactly, but I had to go. Thank God it wasn't anything serious. Whew. Well, I had to go get checked out because I'm like, you know, I'm getting older. Now is the time to, like, get ahead of stuff. And I really look up to Quincy Jones because Quincy Jones is, like, pushing 90, and I, there's a documentary <clears throat> on him on Netflix, that's really dope that I yeah, I, watched that. I watched that. I watched that. I watched it like twice. Yeah. Right. And you see how just like he had his health stuff, but he's lived, he has his family around him, right? Um, he lived a long life. And I haven't heard any cringy stories about him. Um, but he's lived a long life and he's just so pleasant. And I'm like, man. At like in my early 30s, it took me to realize. That's possible because as a black man I don't know why I like my father wasn't around my people that I kind of looked up to were like Biggie and Tupac I'm like damn am not gonna make it past 25 because right. Tupac died at 25 and then now that I'm in between 25 and 39 I'm like dang Malcolm and Martin died at 39 so it's just like we're not <clears throat> this, this this is a whole conversation but a lot of times black men with our health and all the things we're suffering, man, we are suffering in silence. We do a lot of uh, anxiety. And speaking of like the young kids like Drake, I'm not a Drake fan, as you know, but the person that I looked up to when I was a preteen and teenager was DMX because he can give you the toxic masculinity, but he can be also crying on stage. And, you know, he's had some, some things about him too. Uh, but he showed that balance of like, I can cry but then I can go on a football field or I can go play baseball or I can do those things. And I just, I think there's just so much that can be done to, to help the longevity of, of, of black men. Cause you know, black Rob just passed the mesh just passed, um, you know, five, five passed at an early age, like all these dudes is dying 50 and under a lot of them, man. So um, Shocking, it, it takes, right shock you just passed and it just i think we have to really look at ourselves and i i talked to my mom about it and she's like with going to the doctor and getting stuff checked out looking at my cholesterol i gotta take black uh, blood pressure meds now um and some stuff here's the thing too i thought i could do it all by myself right i changed my my lifestyle I work out. about you know i'll be texting y'all at like six in the morning seven in the morning after a workout yeah you I changed- just knocked out a thousand push-ups just a hundred, just a hundred. But all the fasting, all the things, but it's like some stuff, especially with African Americans. Like we've we've had to eat the slop, the the the, the hog maw, the what's it called? What's the stuff my grandma used to eat? Hog head cheese, like all that stuff, the stress of like there's a there's a there's a <clears throat> There's a documentary series now on Netflix that I encourage everybody to listen to watch called "High in the Hog," and we made we made gourmet meals out of nothing. But even in a sense, like just that the the epigenetics mm-hmm. of that inherited stress for 402 years, not eating the best foods, having to you know live through the middle passage, living through Jim Crow, now the incarceration. And so much things, it's it's so much that I can't do by myself. So I have to, I have to humble myself. And I, like you said, you didn't have anybody to talk to about that. And to, I know I'm going on a tangent. My mother just basically said, like, God is making you do these things so you could be a testament to other black men for yourself and for your career. And it's hard, but you know, my my grandpa, he's pushing eighty one. Shouts out to him. Shouts out. He just talks, wow. You know. He told me, well, you know, he's he's straight to the point. Well, you know, I take my, I take my meds and look at me, I'm alive, so <laughs> it's working, right? Don't be afraid, just do it. That's it. I'm like, you're right, grandpa, you're right. Sure, you're right. Sure
0: you're right. The last question I'll ask, and is, even when I wrote it, my my initial response to it was Google, but <laughs> where should people go? to seek out the truth, right? Because the thing that I've come to appreciate more and more is less of the fanciful tales of, you know, the heroism of the Jane Addams and the, it's just, where should people go when they're ready to liberate themselves from like the social work curriculum and really forge like their own path of understanding?
1: I mean, this is just a therapist and me and it's in there somewhere like I ain't going to say who. I, I, I know somebody. They're, uh, they're very into the ivory tower and they intellectualize every fucking thing. But I know somebody who intellectualizes stuff so much that I'm like, bruh, you know, I mean, I hear you going through it in your head with all these things. But what you really need to do is go to like clinicians of color, the website or go to Psych, um, Try to find a black therapist. And talk to them and process these things, right? I think that, you know, the, the, go back to your community, right? Talk to people that maybe not have the knowledge and the resources and the privileges and talk to them too, because they know a lot as well. Um, I would say go listen to the Hip Hop Social Work podcast, right? Continue to listen to the Equity Matters podcast. Go listen to Everybody Relax podcast go listen to the joy of social work podcast that's my cousin and of course listen to the Melanated social work podcast right i would say continue to know that life is a journey um and you must continue and always strive for knowledge um you know it could be for one reading parable of the sower right reading the, the uh, autobiography of Malcolm X, reading up on Asaj Shakur, um, reading about uh, the Black Panthers, reading about uh, the Young Lords, who were Puerto Rican derivative of the Black Panthers, right? Doing your research and just having a, a, a thirst for knowledge. Um, and also, if you have some type of spiritual <clears throat> you know, following, follow that spirituality as well. It takes a totality and holistic nature of of all these things because there's so many different levels to to who we are and it's going to take a very holistic effort to to be on the the marathon of life to 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 unlearn the stuff that they give you and also you know some of the stuff they just teach you in school like it's just Go with your gut. There's a lot of science that talks about gut intelligence, right? There's so much. There's, 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 yeah, read up more on gut intelligence. They said, you know, go with your gut. You can just sit there in these classes and be like, you're telling me Jane Adams at that time was doing all that while there was a bunch of African-Americans coming up from the South. Make it make sense, right? Just go with your gut because some of the stuff that they present you, You can't really take it at face value. And also, even if you do agree with something, look that up too. Like, my mother always taught me and how I was taught, by my OGs is just to like, you can take in what you learn, but do more research on what you learned. You know, (laughs) cross-reference what you have learned, right? So, yeah.
0: You've already given the, the name drop for the Melanated Social Work podcast, but I wanna make sure that people can keep up with you, right? (laughs) <laughs> uh, best way for people to follow the soon-to-be dr josh
1: McNeil. i would just say for now you could just um you can just follow us at melanin social work on ig you can go to our website we have melaninsocialwork.com um you can listen to the podcast we're on apple we're on spotify we're on Google Play. Um, you can click our link tree and our Instagram and see what we all have going on. Like shout outs to Marvin and Jesse. They led the ASWB clinical prep last Thursday. Um, well, y'all have merchandise. I mean, so I would, that's all the, the Instagram right there, but our Instagram, our websites. Yeah. That's a good start right there. And y'all offer like trainings
0: too, like aside from ASWB, like people who want to actually do the work. You all offer like workshops of the sort too, right?
1: Yeah, um, we've done that in the past with people. And they, let's just say they wasn't ready for the knowledge quite yet. <laughs> they chose violence. We did not. Um, so it depends Like we get emails. And it's like if it's within our capacity, we, we've done it. But we, we've done the controversial. Hopefully it will be something bigger in the future. Not anytime soon, America, the world. Uh, liberation counseling which is something that i kind of was talking about initially when i began the interview um and we also like not even just training we've done like we've led healing spaces for you know black and brown communities because i guess consulting-wise or or what have you a lot of these nonprofits, let's just be honest they're band-aid organizations they're not anything preventative so they have a lot of white people with a lot of unchecked uh, power with black and brown folks to be on their you know, billboards and advertisements to get them to grant money, and sometimes those black and brown, especially the black and brown youth, they get put in harm's way with microaggressions and such. So that's why they call people like us to the, you know, into the organizations to lead healing spaces, just to be there to do some mindfulness, to talk about the elephant in the room. Um, to talk about books or whatever else they may need to talk about at that time, because I mean, at the end of the day, it's about healing our communities. We we know what we need, so it's really it starts with us. Hey, Jess, I appreciate you
0: hopping on the podcast. My pleasure, James, as always. My pleasure. And wishing you continued success. I know you you got a lot coming very soon, and so
1: glad to just be a part of it. Hey man, I'm just trying to be like you. And you know, you know, it's more ways than one. You know why too, we spoke about that before. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I got
0: you, <laughs> I got you. Appreciate it. Right. thank you. You ever think about it, or at least think about how much money we spend on education. I know I get a monthly reminder in the sense of my student loan payment, but we spend a lot of money to get knowledge or to to gain access to knowledge that is biased right is is rooted in misinformation or is sugarcoating and glossing over some of the very important facts that help to shape the way that we practice and when i start thinking about that i, I kind of get pissed right you know you, you spend a lot of money on education and for what but that's why we have folks like josh mcneil who go seek out the truth and and do a great job of sharing it with the world and so of course thanks thanks josh for for hopping on the pod i also want to just point out you'll probably notice a theme throughout many of the episodes this year of the title and I, i i purposely you know try to plant myself into the work that i do and so why would I name this episode "The Miseducation of Social Work"? Of course, in reference to one of the greatest uh, hip hop albums of all time, "The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill." And if you don't believe that's true, fight your mama. But no, seriously, I think it's it's a it's a place for us to really think about how we go about unlearning, and the ways that education actually sets us up to not be curious, to actually go with the status quo, and just accept whatever is given to us. And I'm I'm grateful for those out there who are liberated and seek to emancipate the minds of others. I'm not gonna get on my grand rising tip this morning, but I I really think about the fact that there are practitioners and scholars, researchers, academics, and just people who who raise the flag of you have to know more than what you know currently, and they point you in the direction of where to seek it. And so first, just wanna say thanks to Josh for hopping on the pod. Also, just a few plugs. Before we we wrap up, I want to give a shout out to the Fab Five. If you follow me on any social media platform, you know I'm really big on thought partnership and intentional collaboration. So whenever you see me say F5 or Fab Five, I'm actually referring to Josh McNeil, Jabri Harris, Christopher Scott, and Trey Taylor. Many of those names you'll actually recognize from the pod, but we've created this fellowship of just folks who are committed to to living life the best way we know how and also creating spaces for black social workers um this will be the only time that you actually hear me reference like university of michigan in any way that's slightly positive you all know i'm a spartan through and through but realizing there's there's five people who did dynamic things on that team had to give honor there also trey and chris and myself we've branched off to do this initiative that we're calling the brothers in social work collective. You heard me reference this on a previous episode, but we're offering services to institutions who are interested in workshops and trainings. Um, if you're seeking out a public speaker, someone who's dynamic and can deliver a message, you know, hit us up. We've got people in the tuck. You can get one of the three of us, but we've got other folks who are interested and want to expand their portfolio of work. Let us know, send me a note, We've got our email listed, we're out there, right? And so no more excuses of not being able to find qualified people to do X because there is more than enough of us in the field. I don't have too many other announcements right now. I think I've given you all enough between the, the first two episodes of 2022, but We do have a community of practice episode coming up next. It's been quite some time since we've had one really excited to, to dig into this topic of tone policing and what we do as far as stereotypes for black women, really rich topic, great conversation. If you pay attention to us on social media, that's at equity matters podcast on Instagram and at equity matters PC on Twitter, you'll see exactly who will be delivering that conversation So just stay tuned folks. We got a lot of great stuff planned for the year and just excited to be back behind the microphone. Of course, you know, equity matters.